You're listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. We're going to start this month by going back in time and looking to something that happened 840 years ago and then coming uh, back forward uh, to our modern understanding of it. This is a field of trying to understand the past based on historical records and combine them with uh, modern observations with uh, up-to-date uh, telescopes and so on. And it's all about um, new objects in the sky uh, that were observed uh, in China as it happened. We'll find out more about this mysterious object and what we're learning about it uh, by speaking to Professor Quentin Parker, who's the Director of the Laboratory for Space Research at the University of Hong Kong. Uh, so, Quentin, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Let's start off by going back 840 years. So it's the year 1181. Um, what, what happened that is relevant to this particular story? Well, um, obviously I wasn't alive then, so my information is based on historical records, like it is for anybody looking back into the past for astronomical phenomena that may have been recorded by others uh, before the modern era. So this is an event that occurred in 1181 AD that the Chinese and the Japanese actually noted, and it's what they used to call a guest star. Now, these guest stars are what we now know of as supernova. They're stars that explode. There's different kinds of stars that explode. There's a type 1a supernova where you have a donor star and a white dwarf and you breach the Sandra Faker limit and you get an explosion or you've got a very high mass star uh, greater than eight times the mass of our own sun and that also can explode as a supernova. So there's very different kinds of pathways to these explosions. They become very, very bright. In fact, when you see them in other galaxies, they can outshine the light of the entire galaxy for a period of time, they're so intense. Now this one uh, was recorded to have been about as bright as the planet uh, Saturn, not Jupiter, Saturn, which is uh, less bright than Jupiter, but nevertheless, it's one of the planets that the ancients knew about and they realized it moved around. And when they saw this guest star, they said, oh, that's about as bright as the planet Saturn. So that gives us a kind of handle on the magnitude, how bright that object was when they first saw it. We also know that they followed it assiduously for 185 days. They recorded when they first saw it and they recorded when they could no longer see it because over that period of six months, that guest star started to dim little by little until it faded from view and they recorded when they could no longer see it. So that's also really valuable historical information. Now, the other information they gave is they said it was here and there. It was between, you know, uh, uh, Transi and Huage. These are the ancient... Uh, Chinese constellations, you know, and so they were described where it was in a kind of process which doesn't enable us to tie it down with any great precision. So from what we know of the ancient Chinese constellations and where they are and what they said about this object, we can kind of tie it down to an area of about a few degrees on the sky. And uh, so that gives us an area to look at. We have this ancient observation that's that's been made 840 years ago of this of this this new star so you said these these are not that uncommon well they, are. We they are actually very uncommon there's only been five in the last thousand years so this is in our galaxy in yeah. they're very uncommon um well we can't see our galaxy in its entirety because we can't see the wood for the trees because we're right in the heart of it you know well we're two-thirds of the way out from the center but anyway uh we think supernova go off in our galaxy every few decades but we don't see most of them because we don't have the right sight lines, et cetera. But, uh, but the ones that have been recorded historically, there's only, you know, a few over the last thousand years. Why is it important to know um, what happened to these objects that were seen to 
uh, we now know explode, but the, these new stars, why is it useful to know what happened to them you know, a thousand years on? What do we learn from, from that? That's a very good question. And it's basically about understanding this, uh, this uh, stage of stellar evolution and the pathways that lead to these kinds of supernova events. And I said there are several. If you actually look into it, there's different kinds of supernova subclasses, etc. cetera. Uh, you know, there's a type one, type two, type one, type one AX, et cetera different kinds, because we've now refined our research to understand that they're not all the same, and they have different origins and different things that cause them. Sometimes there's big, massive stars that explode. Other times it's interactions where matter from a, another star on the main sequence, perhaps, donates to a white dwarf, it, it creeps matter, breaches a Chandrasekhar limit and you get an explosion and you get a supernova. That's a typical type 1A. Explain to us when a star explodes. Um, so let's say we've got a star that explodes 840 years ago. Um, what happens to it and what do we typically see now uh, a thousand years hence if it's a, a you know like if you look at the crab nebula uh, uh supernova you can uh, we huge studies done on this and you can see the incredible optical imagery the x-ray imagery the radio imagery because all astronomy now is multi-wavelength and we learn a lot about the physics and the, and the environment of these phenomena by looking across the entire electromagnetic spectrum so we do the same for these observations as well of all of all supernova now there's lots of supernova remnants in the galaxy uh, there are a few hundred uh, 300 odd remnants and me and my colleague uh, joe stuper in australia we discovered about 15 percent to add to that but you know these objects you often find uh, they're very large they've expanding for tens of thousands of years and uh, and they might be a pulsar or there might be an x-ray source or a neutron star or something associated with that explosion and so it's the study of the remnants and its expansion and how it's enriching the interstellar medium with elements heavier than iron and iron that, that come out of these explosions and uh, and how it swept up material through the shocks that come out from the expanding uh, uh, when it's before it's free expansion it goes in through a set off phase and it slows down but when it's in free expansion it can be uh, 10,000 kilometers per second winds uh, from the supernova now the type 1 ax of which this PA30 and Pakistan and SN1181 is, is, is an example, are subluminous and the stars don't explode, they combine and merge, but they don't destroy each other. So which is why we still got a star there, but you have an explosion of outer material. You lose material, it goes off in a fast wind, but only a wind of a few thousand kilometers per second. In fact, Pakistan wind is at the lowest end of all the examples known, but the you know the normal supernova can be ten thousand or more kilometers per second. Uh, type one AX of a few thousand kilometers, say two to seven. So, but ours is like eleven hundred. So it's a low end. But then there's so few of these objects known. There's only twenty five known in the entire galaxy. We can't study them easily either. Is uh, you know we don't know where that lower limit is. And we now have said well we, this is now at least this low because it is that because all the other evidence from the Oscar Nova paper looking at X ray products from the from the supernova in terms of the species of, of, of iron and other elements that are there are able to designate it as a likely type yx and so you know there's a lot of data a lot of observations a lot of back knowledge that goes into an interpretation of something like this object it's not just that it's a supernova from 900 840 years ago uh, but it turns out that the star is unique in the galaxy this sent this star has a wolf ray spectrum. By that, it means it has very, very fast winds, which manifest themselves as bright, broad emission lines, very, very broad. And normally they're a few thousand kilometers per second broad in the most extreme 10, 20. This one is 0.1 the velocity of light. 
So sorry. So that's the the, the material coming off the star is coming off the star at, at one tenth the speed of light. So that's I mean, right. that close into the star now. It's not the faint outer PA thirty nebula we're referring to. And that's completely different. Uh, but the star itself, when I said it's a Wolf Ray, normally the only kind of Wolf Ray stars that are known up till now, two kinds. One, uh, the uh, the fast winds of young stars, fifty solar masses, twenty solar masses. They go through a Wolf Ray phase quite often. And there's a few hundred wolf ray stars known in our galaxy of population one type. Massive stars live fast, die young, fast winds. But then there's this unusual case in physics where you get another population that have the same spectra, that look the same optically in their optical spectrum, yet have come from a completely different evolutionary pathway. And these are the central stars of planetary nebulae going through a wolf ray, wolf ray phase. Now, those stars are low mass and old billions of years old, some of them. And yet, when you look at the spectrum, they look almost the same. It's one of those cases in physics where the same kind of manifestation spectroscopically come out at a certain stage of evolution of different, two different kinds of objects. And they're the only kinds of wolf range stars known until this object, because this object is neither the central star of a planet Genebuli, nor is it the ejector of a high mass population one star either. It's unique. And then j just to... Just to explain, you talked about measuring these spectra. So the spectra that you measure, you get a fingerprint of the material that's that's in that star uh, or around that star. Mm. But also, crucially, that's where you get the velocity information. That's how you, you figure out how fast this stuff is moving because the spectra Indeed. changes just, just essentially due to the Doppler shift of the of yes. material. So, so this star, you said it's unique. So it's the first of its kind. It might be the only one in the entire galaxy, for all we know. Back in the 1980s, I guess, there were these studies done of, of radio sources, so sources emitting radio waves, which is, as you mentioned, it's a good way of finding uh, supernova remnants. And so one of those was pegged as maybe being what was left of this supernova from 840 years ago, being the remnant of that. Um, what was the problem with that radio source uh, that meant it was not a perfect fit? There's discrepant ages from the observed expansion velocity and a proper motion, even of the knots that you can see in the remnant 3C58, and the neutron star cooling models as well that were needed, and the pulsar spin down rate that's needed proposed a much smaller distance than had previously been found. But then this guy, I think Kothas, has proposed a much smaller distance to the 3C58, but then that changes the age discrepancy, but then makes the object much brighter. And then if it was much brighter, why wasn't it seen? And so it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit all sorts of things. The more people studied it, the more problems arose. And you got a crisis because you had all these anomalies. And so the one anomalies build up, I mean, I'm teaching this in my courses at the moment, you know, paradigm shifts in science, is that when you have a, you go through a crisis, there's too many anomalies come up. You have to abandon that paradigm. I'm sorry, it ain't 3C58. You know, it's, it's uh, this one, PA30 in Pakistan, I'm sorry because everything here fits easily. You know, but I think the evidence is extremely clear. And, uh, and at the moment, I think that our discovery and our properties that we've determined, the distance, the age, the size, the brightness, uh, everything fits this object. And so I think any reasonable scientist looking at the evidence would agree with us. Okay, so, so we've got this... Um, uh... The, this link between this particular object and 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 this supernova. So we now have um, this particular type of uh, supernova, this type one AX supernova, these two stars uh, colliding or merging. 
um, and causing this explosion. We now have what that looks like uh, a thousand or nearly a thousand years later. As you said, there's not many of these things. Are there any other examples of what's thought to be this type of explosion? Uh, there's one in our galaxy? Other, yeah, there is one other example. It was brought to our attention uh, late in the piece. Uh, and uh, this object is uh, much further away. It's very difficult to study in detail. And so this object, actually our object, turns out to be the only one of its kind where you can really study it properly because the star's bright enough. Uh, the nebula uh, is very faint, but we can certainly apply uh, an, uh, more telescope time in multibands and get much deeper spectroscopy of the nebula shell and learn more about it. We can get even, I mean, even though we've now got decent X-ray data, we can certainly do with more. And so there's all kinds of studies. I mean, the only interesting thing is we can't detect it in the radio. And, uh, and so uh, that's quite interesting, but then it's not unheard of. Uh, there's radio quiet at supernovas. So no, it's not unheard of. And so again, because it's a different kind, it's, hard, it's only two known in our own galaxy. And so uh, uh, again, we don't know all the properties of this class yet. How far away is supernova 1181 and, 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 and PA30? And, and how do we measure that? Well, I mean, we measured it uh, via Gaia. You know, Gaia is this astrometric satellite and a star is, is bright enough that we can uh, get a distance of 2.3 kiloparsecs with an error of about 140 parsecs. So that's about 8,000 light years to put it in yeah, approximately. context. Yeah. Um, okay, so we have this object. We know where it came from. You've got this, this object that uh, you think you can link to being the same the same thing 840 uh, years later, this this very hot star, this extremely hot star in the centre and this, this material around it, uh, a, a few light years across, uh, spreading out. Mm. Um, what what next? What do you look for next? Well, um, uh, fame and fortune, uh, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> I mean, you've already got the star named after you, right? I mean, how, how did the star come about to be named Parker Star? How did that, how did that come about? Well, okay. Well, uh, I'm, uh, I've been discovering planetary nebulae uh, through our HRPAS survey that we did in the uh, Southern Galactic Plane. And uh, I've probably discovered more planetary nebulae than anyone has ever lived. Half the total population known over the last 200 years we found from my survey, HRPAS survey. And I didn't name any of them after me. I didn't go Parker 1, Parker 2. I actually called them PHR, PPA, where the P is me, but the other P is Peo, the A is Acker, the H is Hartley, the R is Rousset. And so it's just a team. So I just used members of the team that were working with me at the time and put their initial in as a prefix for this discovery with a concatenated RA deck. And that's what I did. A few of my other friends or people working with me, they call, oh, I'm going to call it Fru 110. Okay, David, you call it Fru 110 if you want. I'm calling it PHR and FRP and whatever it is. So I never claimed anything. And I thought, well, when I've come across something that I think is really so extremely unusual and given that I really recognize its unusual nature, for once in my life, I'll, I'll, I'll be a little bit egotistical. It's named after me, not the nebula PA30, which stands for Patrick 30. People are confusing the PA30 with Parker Star. It's a different thing. Patrick is a... a uh, is a is an amateur astronomer in America, Dana Patrick. Uh, he discovered the nebula, the shell of the P, of of the of the supernova. So with the, with the fame and fortune that comes with it, um, <laughs> uh, although I suspect less of the fortune um, with these things. Well, zero cash. Zero yeah. cash. Um, what what are you hoping for next? Do you have lots of programs to study this in lots more detail? Are other people going to sort of join the bandwagon of studying this with telescopes around the world and up in space so. and so on? Do you think? I hope so, because that's the way the best science is done. I mean, you, you're conceited to think, oh, I've found it, so 
I'm the only one that's allowed to study it now. No, I want everybody with the best telescopes and best facilities to learn as much about this object as they possibly can, because I think it's really exciting uh, example of an unusual stellar evolution uh, that could give us tremendous insights in, into these kinds of objects, and they're rare anyway. And so uh, I think it's a great story. Okay, and the, and the last question then is, is that this was discovered, or oh, this link was made kind of serendipitously. 840 years ago, the ancient astronomers in, say, China, Japan, and, and probably a few other places as well in, in the Northern Hemisphere saw this saw this thing as, as yeah. a new new star yes. that was bright, certainly bright enough to uh, to record. Yeah. Um, 840 years in the future, so so uh, the, the, the last uh, few years, there's been this link made between this uh, this object that was being discovered, uh, being investigated for other reasons, unrelated reasons, that then Absolutely. there was this sort of serendipitous link made. This story turned when we wrote this Nature Astronomy paper on the star and the nebula around it, where we had decent spectra, we found a shell of expanding gas around that uh, uh, star. We're going through the second review, then bang, out came a paper from a bunch of Russians led by a guy called Gevamadze, who actually had the spectrum of this object, said it was a super Chandrasekhar, object was going to go supernova and blah 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 i thought we've been gazumped we've been absolutely gazumped what do we do now well we thought we've got stuff they don't have we've got the spectra of a nebula they don't even know there's a nebula spectra there they just had the central star which of itself as i said was unbelievable and so we thought oh well never mind we missed out uh, but we still got a story to tell because we got stuff they didn't have so we were working on that and then another paper came out by Oscar Nova, who had got X-ray data that then showed that this object uh, was probably not a, not a Super Chandrasekhar thing, but a double degenerate merger of two white dwarfs that led to a Type 1x supernova in the past. And so these are incredibly rare. These Type 1x, type 1x supernova are very rare. Uh, they're subluminous. There's only one other known in our galaxy, 25 known in the universe. You typically see them in external galaxies, not in our own. And so uh, there's one historically known in our galaxy, supposedly, and this would be the second in our galaxy. So then our colleague on the paper, Albert Zilstra, um, he said, well, why don't we, given that Oscar Nova pointed out it was a supernova candidate in the past, why don't we look to see if there's any supernova in the past around this object? And hey, presto, we found one, supernova 11818 AD. And the more we studied it, the more we realized we were onto something. The only supernova of the last thousand years known uh, from ancient records that hadn't got an absolutely definitive modern day identity. And now we've done that, we've provided that for the first time. So we're very excited and proud that we've done that, but it was because we were gazumped. <laughs> and in fact, if we hadn't been gazumped, we might not have even found that or made that association. Somebody else might've done it. And that's how science goes sometimes. You, it sometimes goes in unexpected directions and for us, the unexpected direction was Parker Star and Patrick 30 Nebula being the progenitors and res res residue of the uh, guest star of 1181 AD. Serendipity is wonderful and it is the way a lot of science works. But a lot of astronomy these days is going to uh, to try and do surveys and, and to do this more um, uh, more thoroughly, more for more formulated and, and more rigorously in some senses to try and catch them all. Is there something that can be done to do that, do you think? Or for these kind of objects that are so unusual, are we are we at the moment limited to serendipity, essentially? Um, the thing about, you know, normalcy and about what you expect and what you hunt for is that depending on the algorithms you set on, the data rates are tremendously high and you can't store necessarily all 
all of the data. You have to data compress. You have to data sift and sort and 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 remove. And so uh, at that stage, discoveries are being lost because you're putting in filters that say I'm only going to look at stuff in this in this uh, phase space in this, this locus of parameter space, and that's risking throwing something away that maybe is incredibly valuable. You, you, you find what you're looking for, essentially. Well, exactly. Or you can only find what you're looking for, yeah. I mean, we're aware of these issues, and we're not like we're not thinking that that is a, a potential problem, but then, you know, you're challenged by just the sheer enormity of the task of the data that's confronting you, the data avalanche and how to deal with it. You know, so using AI and other data mining techniques to make sure that, you know, that interesting correlations are not lost, but historically they have been, you know, and they found later. Oh, I missed it. If only I hadn't done this, I would have picked it up 10 years earlier kind of story that you sometimes hear about. You know, and so Alexander Fleming with penicillin is because, you know, everybody was looking at the mold as a problem for their experiment they were doing and we'll throw it away. It's contaminated to get another one. Let's get this gel correct so we can do our thing. But then he started looking at the mold itself and realized something, you know, that's the serendipity right there. And it's sort of being tuned to the unexpected and being open to it is part of, a, you know, having a trained mind that is open to that, that you're not blinkered into your paradigm that you can't see something outside of it. So fingers crossed that in the future that's, that serendipity can still continue with the data we're getting, as you say, with not too much uh, filtering going on. And meanwhile, the investigations of uh, Parker Star and PA30 and Supernova 1181, or which appear to be the same thing, uh, can continue and we'll learn uh, lots more uh, about them and these unusual uh, objects. Uh, so Professor Quentin Parker, uh, thanks very much. Uh, thank you very much, Chris. It's been a great pleasure. That's it for this month. Don't forget, you can catch previous episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk or you can find us on Spotify. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm.